0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Galina Limarenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at the PFL in Switzerland, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking uh, to Daniel Gibbs about his and Theresa Barker's new book, A Tattoo on My Brain. neurologist's personal battle against alzheimer's disease dr daniel gibbs is one of 50 million people worldwide with an alzheimer's disease diagnosis unlike most patients with alzheimer's however dr gibbs worked as a neurologist for nearly for 25 years caring for patients with the very disease now affecting him also unusual is that dr gibbs had begun to suspect he had alzheimer's several years before any official diagnosis could be made. Forewarned by genetic testing showing the, uh, he carried alleles that increased the risk of developing the disease, he noticed symptoms of mild cognitive impairment long before any tests would have alerted him. In this highly personal account, Dr. Gibbs documents the effect his diagnosis had on his life and explains his advocacy for improving early recognition of Alzheimer's weaving clinical knowledge from decades caring for dementia patients with his personal experience of the disease. This is an optimistic tale of one month's journey with early stage Alzheimer's. Well, Dan, welcome to the show.
0: Well, thanks so much for having me.
1: Oh, It's great to have you here with us today. So as we have witnessed the unprecedented times of the recent global pandemic, I was wondering if you could start by reflecting on how has it affected you and your work? And maybe some main, t- main takeaways that you have gathered from the experience.
0: Well, um, of course, it, it, it's, it's affected everybody. Uh, I have to say that in some ways, it's been helpful. Uh, it's allowed me to concentrate on uh, writing the book during part of that time. Uh, it, uh, you know, brought me back into the house and, mm-hmm. and, and, uh, and, uh, uh, I discovered, for example, that uh, I could get all the, the uh, uh, aerobic activity uh, that I'd been getting at the gym just by walking in the neighborhood and 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 by doing other things. So I was actually able to save quite a bit of time in my day by not having to travel to the gym every day like I had done in the past. Um, so that that in a, in a sense was a benefit. But of course. Uh, uh, the loss of interaction with with family and and friends was was you know was hard, as it was for everybody.
1: And do you have a dog that you could also walk uh, during this time to get a bit of exercise?
0: Oh yeah, yeah. My dog Jack uh, is an English cocker spaniel, and uh, we walk uh, every day uh, about uh, uh, ten thousand steps. Uh, you know, Probably four and a half miles, uh, and we live right next to a, a forest park, uh, and uh, we get quite a bit of elevation gain—about uh, four hundred and fifty feet on our walks. So uh, I track my heart rate, and I usually get it up to about one hundred and twenty. Uh, so it's good aerobic exercise, and uh, sometimes uh, I have to urge him on. He gets a little tired on our walks, but you know we're 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 doing fine there.
1: <laughs> mm. You've recently written a very interesting article in Scientific American, and in, the, in there you say that you really, you can really discriminate between dogs, can you?
0: <laughs> That's right. Uh, so one of the interesting things about uh, Alzheimer's disease uh, is that uh, almost everybody, I think, it's very, very common for people to lose the ability to recognize faces. It's called face blindness or prosos, prosopagnosia, and it's due to uh, damage to the fusiform gyrus of the temporal lobe, uh, which is one of the early uh, parts of the brain that is that is damaged in, in Alzheimer's disease. So uh, it's very common for people with, with even early stage Alzheimer's to start to have problems with with recognizing uh, even familiar faces. Uh, and of course, with the pandemic pandemic, uh, we're all wearing masks and, and, uh, that just le- uh, puts one more layer of, of, uh, difficulty in, in facial recognition. And, uh, yeah, you know, I, I, I relate this, this, uh, anecdote, uh, uh, that, uh, experience that happened to me, uh, last year when I was out walking the dog and I came across, a. uh, well, I should say that 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 about a year and a half before, there were uh, three young women on our block who all gave birth to uh, babies within a month or two of each other. And they all had dogs, uh, and two of them had dark hair, and one of them had blonde hair. And so I was out walking the dog, and I came across this blonde woman wearing a mask, pushing a stroller, and walking a dog. And I took her for the neighbor that lives across the street from me, and we started chatting and uh she was very friendly and and you know i asked her how old her child was now uh and then as she started to walk away i realized that she had the wrong dog uh, <laughs> the, the the blonde across the street from me has a has a black labrador retriever and, and this was some sort of you know, curly-haired terrier and uh it dawned on me that that this was a total stranger uh and uh, I had been unable to recognize her because she was wearing a mask and because of my Alzheimer's disease. Uh, And uh, so I actually wrote uh, about that experience in in a blog that I I, uh, used to kind of update uh, the book Uh, and it got picked up by uh, an editor from Scientific American and uh, he asked me to expand the blog into a a short opinion article about face blindness uh, in, during the pandemic, and and so that was kind of a fun experience. And so I, I sent the article to uh, each of these three women, and uh, they all got uh, qu- quite a kick out of it uh, about the, <laughs> the, the, the missed identification, and, and uh, which raises another point. You know, I have Alzheimer's disease, but uh, I'm I'm uh, not shy about talking about it, and uh, you know, we discuss it with the neighbors, and 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 I'm actually quite a uh, an advocate for the early recognition of Alzheimer's disease, so I speak about it uh, you know, fairly frequently. And, and uh, uh, you know, one of the, the things I really am trying to get across is to is to uh, try to decrease the stigma that's ato- that's attached to Alzheimer's, so that we're not afraid to talk about it with even casual uh, acquaintances.
1: So, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself?
0: Uh, yes, uh, uh, I. Uh, I'm a retired neurologist. I'm 70 years old, and I have uh, uh, early-stage Alzheimer's disease. Uh, I uh, have a background in neuroscience as well. I did both MD and PhD degrees uh, in medical school and actually had no uh, intention of practicing medicine. I wanted to be a biomedical scientist. And after medical school, I I did a, a year of internal medicine uh, internship. Uh, I'm not sure what the equivalent is uh, in Europe, but uh, yeah, one year of clinical uh, training. And then I went into a research fellowship in neuroendocrinology, which had been my, my graduate uh, field. Uh, but after uh, four or five years, uh, after the, the uh, fellowship, I was on the faculty at, at University of California, San Diego doing research in uh, the neuroendocrinology of the stress response. And after four or five years doing that, I decided to go back and finish my clinical training in neurology. And surprise! And and I had the the plan all along to go back into academic uh, medicine, but I really fell in love with actually taking care of people with neurological problems. And when mm. I emerged, when I emerged from the uh, neurology residency, uh, at, I had actually been offered a position at the the medical school. Uh, And I, at the last minute, changed my mind and went in and joined a a, a group practice in Portland, Oregon, and practiced general neurology for the next 25 years. I also taught uh, general neurology both to uh, medicine residents uh, involved with the hospital I worked at, but also at the local medical school. I taught neurology residents and finished up my career the last three years at the medical school as director of the residency training program. Uh,
1: so during your career journey, what roles did your family, mentors, and your colleagues play? And maybe you have some advice for our younger listeners, like early career researchers who are considering perhaps having a career in neurology.
0: Well, neurology is is uh, I I find it a fascinating area because it is so intellectually stimulating. It uh, you know every every branch of medicine. Uh, has its, you know, uh, I, I shouldn't say boring, but it's it's routine cases that are that are seen, and, and but they're still satisfying if you can help somebody get through the the headaches or you know whatever. But in neurology, I, I don't think there was a week that uh, went by during my 25 years when I didn't have a patient that was a real intellectual challenge in order to make a diagnosis and to come up with a treatment plan. So it was, uh, I, I think it's a great specialty to go into for those who are seeking uh, uh, you know, a real intellectually challenging uh, and stimulating uh, career. Uh, and uh, when I was in medical school, I had a, f- a friend who uh, told me that his, uh, his uh, I think it was his father or something, had, had told him that, you uh, he was a neurologist, and he'd gone into research because it was so frustrating practicing neurology because back then, this would have been in the 70s, uh, there was nothing you could do for almost all the neurologic problems. And now and that's changed tremendously. Uh, you know, for example, uh, when I first was in practice, there was very little that we uh, had to offer for people with multiple sclerosis. I think it's called disseminating sclerosis in, in the UK and in Europe, but... Uh, and that's changed totally. Uh, and, and even during the 25 years I was practicing, I can think of uh, at least one patient who I saw throughout those 25 years. Who at the end of the 25 years, you would not have any idea that she had uh, MS um, mm. because there were you know, we have now uh, disease modifying medications that that can control multiple sclerosis. And you know that's where the challenge now is to. Uh, Approach some of the, the uh, more complicated or res- treatment resistant uh, disorders like Alzheimer's disease and the other uh, dementias uh, that we still don't really understand how to get at them. but you know we're, we're going to make it. I mean I think there's there will be breakthroughs in the years to come. So it's a very exciting field.
1: That's a really hopeful message so you are in this unique position of wearing two hats so one of them is being an expert in neurology with a very very deep knowledge of the field but also being a person with alzheimer's as you, you, you said and your latest book um, brings us really intimate account about uh, both of these areas really so i was wondering why did you call it a tattoo on my brain
0: <laughs> uh You know, I actually came up with the title before I started uh, writing the book. Uh, And the title came and went. I I actually came up with a different title later on that I thought was was, uh, 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 a little more quirky. But uh, I was told, and and the people told me so were absolutely right, that it was too... Es- not, not, Esoteric is not the word, but uh, that most people wouldn't get it. And, and that title mm. was, you know, from uh, dopamine to amyloid. And that was based on the, the fact that uh, my early research uh, was on uh, the role of dopamine in regulating prolactin secretion. And, and, you know, back in the 70s, it was still unclear whether dopamine was a, uh, a physiologic uh, inhibiting factor of prolactin secretion and the work i did as a graduate student proved that it was and and ironically that was the most cited paper of my career was the one i wrote as a graduate mm-hmm. student because it was the, the it was the last brick in the pyramid that others had built right up to that point It wasn't that my my contribution was was all that great but that was the idea of, of going from dopamine you know the kind of the high and, and there there's this also overlay of dopamine being uh, a neurotransmitter of of reward uh, and, uh, so, you know, kind of the highs of my life, you know, <laughs> going towards the amyloid and, and the depths, but, uh, that was abandoned. And I went back to the, the, um, tattoo on my brain and, and I'm glad I did because that, um, that represents, uh, a, a, it's a metaphor, uh, for, uh, well, it, it's grounded in the fact that, uh, one of the side effects I had from uh, a trial of uh, anti-amyloid monoclonal antibody was uh, uh, bleeding into my brain, along with swelling of my brain, and those those multiple areas of hemorrhage called um, uh, well, there are microhemorrhages uh, or hemosiderosis uh, uh, resolved completely, as did the edema over a number of months, the swelling. Uh, but what was left was the hemosiderin, the, the iron-containing pigment uh, that's contained in blood, and that will probably be there for the rest of my life. So in a literal sense, uh, I actually have a tattoo on my brain because the hemosiderin is not all that different from the ink that would be used in making tattoos. Uh, but uh, in a figurative sense, it, 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 it also works as uh, you know a a mark uh uh, of of alzheimer's that i carry with me as as a sort of uh uh, grounding point if you will
1: Mm. oh that is so interesting wow so how did you come to writing this book was it why was it important for you to write it
0: well i i thought i had a story to tell uh again uh uh, because of i had those two perspectives uh, and in looking at my disease uh, as uh, uh, a scientist and, and a physician, as well as uh, as somebody uh, who has Alzheimer's disease, and, and there's a lot, there are a lot of misconceptions about Alzheimer's that I thought needed to be addressed. And in particular, uh, I think as as a as a society. We we have this view of Alzheimer's disease as being uh, a fairly short, rapidly progressive dementia uh, that lasts eight to ten years, and you're dead, uh, you know, from the onset. And of course, that was the very first uh, patient, uh, Auguste Dieter, uh, uh, who uh, was the patient of of Dr. Alois uh, Alzheimer. Uh, followed that pattern. Uh, uh, she uh, died just uh, about seven, eight years you know, after she uh, first came to medical attention. But the point is that uh, those are the late stages of, the Alzheimer, of Alzheimer's disease. And the disease uh, actually is a much longer disease. The, the neuropathology, the amyloid plaques, and then the neurofibrillary tangles uh, begin, at least the amyloid plaques uh, begin about 20 years before cognitive impairment starts. And and uh, that's this has been a, a mostly ignored part of the disease. And uh, I think it's really important to change the conversation about Alzheimer's and the awareness of it, because I think the sweet spot for treatment is going to be in these early presymptomatic stages. And there's already a lot of evidence that I talk about in the book about lifestyle modifications that can slow the progression of Alzheimer's disease, but they have to be started in that presymptomatic uh, stage of the disease. If we late, if we wait until the end game, uh, which is what we've always thought of as Alzheimer's dementia, it's too late. You know that there already are too many dead cells, uh, too too many dead neurons. The brain is shrinking and getting. Uh, Any benefit from any treatment at that point is going to be very difficult, and we don't have anything that we know that'll work there. Uh, So uh, I'm trying to change the conversation, or to help change the conversation. I'm not the only person doing this, obviously. Uh, And so I I wouldn't necessarily recommend uh, testing, at least not for everyone. Uh, There are uh, very good tests available, with with more on the way in the next few years that will allow us to identify people who are on the Alzheimer's arc. There are uh, PET scans now uh, uh, for uh, detecting the amyloid protein uh, and the beta amyloid and also uh, the abnormal tau. Now, they're very expensive and insurance, at least in the United States, uh, don't cover these yet, so they're not going to be in general use. But there are blood tests uh, in the works. Uh, They're being Used for research purposes now, that are very sensitive for detecting uh, tau, the the abnormal protein in neurofibrillary tangles, and there's there's one test that's specific for tau that's induced by amyloids. So that is a very that may be a very good biomarker for someone on the Alzheimer's uh, uh, progression. Um, but I, these tests don't don't necessarily need to be done on on everybody. Uh, But people who uh, have a family history of Alzheimer's, uh, particularly a a parent or a sibling, are at significantly increased risk. And they're the ones who, uh, whether they get tested or not, should be thinking about adopting the lifestyle modifications that are clinically based, that that are evidence-based, and that uh, uh, have been proven to slow the progression of Alzheimer's and reduce the risk of actually getting uh, clinical uh, Alzheimer's dementia. Uh, So uh, that's a a message I'm trying to, to get out there. Also people at risk uh, uh, people who have a family history who are in uh, middle age uh, may want to think about joining a research study because there are a number of trials for various uh, approaches to uh, uh, treating or preventing Alzheimer's that need people who uh, don't yet have symptoms, but yet uh, do have neuropathological changes in their brain already. Uh, so I think that's, a, that's an important thing. The, the, the point is that we need to start these things in middle age, not wait until people already have symptoms.
1: So, what do we know about the factors that con- that contribute to development of Alzheimer's so far?
0: Well, uh, interestingly, uh, uh, the the risk of ApoE four may actually be higher than than uh, twelve times for two copies. There was a a, a, a very interesting paper within the last year uh, from uh, Ryman's group in at, at uh, the Banner. Uh, clinic in Arizona, where they used uh, several thousand autopsy-confirmed brains, uh, autopsy-confirmed Alzheimer's disease. Uh, And this is the first time this has been done, and then comparing it to their APOE4 status. And they found that uh, having two copies of APOE4 actually increased risk by 30-fold, not 12-fold, compared to having two copies of APOE3 which is the combination that's considered to be of neutral risk. Um, So uh, APOE is a very important risk factor, but it's not a determinant. Not everybody with APOE4 gets Alzheimer's disease, Um, but if you have two copies, your risk goes way up. Now, now there are genes that are determinant. They're rare, but there are three uh, genes for autosomal dominant uh, Alzheimer's disease. Uh, Precyndolin-1, Precyndolin-2, and uh, APP, what does that stand for? Uh, (laughs) I'm sorry, I can't remember. Yeah, thank you. Um, And uh, so if if you have one copy of those, you will get Alzheimer's, and it uh, occurs at an earlier age, usually in the 40s or 50s. But those only account for less than 2% of Alzheimer's. Um, APOE-4... Uh is found in about sixty percent of people with Alzheimer's. so n- some people get Alzheimer's without APOE4 uh, and without one of the uh, autosomal dominant ones, and they may have some combination of of the m- many other uh genetic risk factors. but uh it's a it's a growing field. there's a lot of interest in it, but uh, family history is a big part of of your risk for Alzheimer's disease. Now, uh, there are other things. Uh, Having had head injuries uh, uh, increases the risk for getting Alzheimer's later on. Uh, There's been a lot of interest uh, uh, recently in uh, what we call soccer and and, uh, in in Europe would be football uh, uh, players uh, who play at the professional level and are uh, heading the ball uh, and and sustaining uh, subclinical head injuries. And there's an increased risk of dementia, including Alzheimer's disease, in, in that population. The uh, same is true of, of uh, uh, prize fighters, uh, uh, boxers, uh, and uh, other people who get repetitive uh, head injuries. Uh, and, and there are other uh, less well-documented risk factors for Alzheimer's, but the big ones are are, are genes uh, and... and uh, who your family is.
1: So you mentioned a little earlier, the mod, uh, the lifestyle modifiers that can have impact on either development or the progression of, uh, of Alzheimer's. Can you talk a little bit about those?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so the, the, uh, the evidence is best, uh, and there's overwhelming evidence that uh, getting an adequate amount of aerobic exercise reduces risk significantly uh, in both in, uh, the rate of progression of Alzheimer's, uh, pathology and, uh, in the risk of having a diagnosis of of Alzheimer's disease later on. And those actually may be the same things, but just different time points looking at them. Um, strength, uh, uh, testing, uh, strength exercise, lifting weights and all that, uh, it certainly doesn't hurt, but it doesn't seem to have that same benefit uh, it, it's, it's a, a question of, of getting the heart rate up. And in fact, in, 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 general, you know, what's good for the heart is good for the brain. So th- most of these lifestyle modifications are part of a heart, heart healthy lifestyle as well. Uh, certainly the aerobic exercise is, uh, the second one is diet and, and the, the evidence is, uh, perhaps a little, uh, less firm on that. But it, it, it appears uh, that there is very good evidence that a plant-based Mediterranean-style diet uh, does slow the progression of uh, Alzheimer's, uh, you know, if started before symptoms uh, occur. So um, uh, not all studies show that, though. Uh, so there's a little bit of controversy there. Uh, the data is a little bit better for a modification of of the Mediterranean diet, called the Mind diet, and I think that stands for uh, Mediterranean Dash Intervention for Neurodegeneration. I think, um, and uh, that's been out for about six or seven years, and it it's essentially the same as the Mediterranean diet, with a greater evident, a greater emphasis on foods containing. Uh, that are rich in flavanols, uh, including uh, berries and nuts. Uh, again, it's mainly plant-based um, and that's the diet that I, I try to follow. I'm, I'm certainly not a hundred percent on it. Uh, one of the interdictions on the mind diet is cheese. You're only supposed to have one serving of cheese a week and I love cheese. So I, I'm am I'm a I'm a failure on that. But uh, the studies of the MIND diet have showed that uh, even partial uh, uh, adherence to it does provide some benefit. So you don't have to go all out uh, on it. But in general, um, um, avoiding the the red meats and um, uh, eating eating a uh, plant-based diet seems to be beneficial. Now, uh, then we get to the ones that are uh, a little bit more controversial. Um, uh, that is uh, intellectual stimulation and social stimulation. And I shouldn't say controversial. I mean, no, nobody thinks they're bad. But but uh, the question is, uh, how much does staying intellectually stimulating st- uh, uh, stimulated help? And uh, it it probably depends on what sort of. Uh, intellectual stimulation that that you get. Uh, and, uh, it seems to be most beneficial to, uh, do intellectual exercise that, uh, involves new learning. you know, uh, I think of it as, as laying down new synapses, uh, in the brain, uh, Rather than just uh, repeating things, and, and uh, I love to do crossword puzzles. I do them. I do the New York Times crossword uh, every day while I'm having my lunch. Uh, but uh, some of the scoffers uh, point out that uh, uh, doing a lot of crossword puzzles makes you good at doing crosswords, but it, mm-hmm. it doesn't really, you know, help help your memory. And and the, the, the way I approach that is that, uh, that, that may, that may well be true, but, uh, I try to make doing crosswords, uh, a learning experience as well. So when I get towards the end of the week, when the crossword puzzles are getting pretty hard, um, uh, uh, they, they almost always will, will pop up with a word or a place, uh, that I've never heard of before. And so I stop and, and, uh, do a little research. You know, Google w- that word or that place, and try to learn something about uh, that lake or or, or whatever. Just to to, to to learn something new. The other thing is like you know, playing a musical instrument. Uh, you know, uh, doing music is 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 one of the things that's preserved in our brain uh, much longer than 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 most things. It's it's one of the it's it's part of the uh, procedural memory for, uh, largely. That is uh, contained more in, in the, the basal ganglia and cerebellum, uh, and and uh, and we musicians can can play things long after they can do uh, other things when they have Alzheimer's disease. But uh, again, it's it probably is more helpful uh, if you're a, a musician to not just play. Uh, the old things that you learned as a child or or whatever, but to learn new pieces and that may be putting down uh, new pathways. And and that's what I try to do. I'm, I'm a, I'm an amateur pianist. I'm not, I'm not really very good at all, but yeah, I can still play the things I learned as a, as a, as a child. Uh, although it's getting a little harder to, to, to play some of them, but I do try to learn uh, new pieces as well. And, and, and I, I, I think that that may help. Um, the last thing, uh, oh, the, the social part of it uh, I should also mention, um, staying socially engaged seems to be important and that's uh, particularly hard in Alzheimer's because um, most of us with Alzheimer's uh, uh, lose our sense of empathy and, and, and for a variety of reasons social engagement is harder. Uh, you know, one of the first parts of the brain that is damaged, uh, at least with uh, uh, amyloid pathology, is the prefrontal cortex, which is uh, <clears throat> where we, we get our motivation to do things. And, and I certainly feel that. I, I just can't get motivated to, to, to do things or to go see people. But that's probably, it's probably important to make an effort to do that and, and connect with people. There, there is some evidence to support that. Um, one of the things that I experience, uh, in social engagement, in social engagements that I find difficult is that it's increasingly difficult for me to, uh, understand people talking, especially if there is more than one person talking at the same time. I, I can't, I can no longer fill in gaps in a conversation from context, uh, and so even when my wife says something to me, I almost always have to ask her to repeat it again because I, I miss if I miss the first part of what she says, I can't make sense out of the rest of it. So I, I have to have her repeat it. And of course, that's very annoying to her, although she's, she's patient. But in a group, it's just impossible. Uh, even a family uh, group, uh, I just have to sit back and I have a hard time following banter, you know, across the dinner table, um, because I just can't disentangle the, the various conversations. So, you know, it, uh, it, it's a two, uh, there are two parts to the social thing. One is that it's much more difficult for us to do when we have Alzheimer's, but it probably is important to, to make the effort to, to do it. Uh, the, the last thing, uh, unless I've forgotten one, uh, for, uh, Lifetime modification is is relatively new uh, and it, it's, it seems to be more specific uh, for Alzheimer's rather than than cardiovascular health, and that's sleep. Um, there are an increasing number of studies that, that show that uh, getting adequate sleep does uh, slow the progression of Alzheimer's, reduce the risk of Alzheimer's. And the sweet spot seems to be about seven to eight hours. Uh, there was just an article that came out uh, within last month uh, in JAMA Neurology uh, and, and actually in today's uh, copy of, of uh, ALTS Forum that uh, is a, a really good summary of uh, breaking news in, in Alzheimer's research. It was also covered uh, that uh, showed that uh, people who get... Uh, less than, that six or less hours of sleep uh, are much more likely to have amyloid in their brain and are much more likely to have Alzheimer's or to get Alzheimer's. And the the interesting thing on that paper was that at the other extreme of sleep, it also was bad. So people who got more than nine hours of sleep a day uh, also had more amyloid in their brain uh, and had... Um, uh, they had a different, uh, they didn't really have Alzheimer's, uh, cognitive impairment, but they had, um, oh gosh, I can't remember the details, but it was, it was, I think it was a problem with executive function as opposed to the, the testing that was done in the people with less sleep. But, uh, and of course this, this begs the question, uh, do, do they, are they getting less sleep because they have Alzheimer's or is less sleep causing Alzheimer's? And, and that still has not been worked out, uh, or vice versa, are they getting more sleep because they've got a, a, a some sort of sleep disorder that may be contributing to the Alzheimer's, or, or or you know what what's causing what? But um, there, as a parallel uh, bit of, of uh, research, there is a, a growing interest in what's called the lymphatic circulation in the brain, and this is a, a perivascular series of of vessels that carry fluid, uh, essentially uh, cerebral spinal fluid, through and across the brain, and it is uh, the, the flow through this uh, uh, lymphatic system uh, is most prominent during non-REM slow wave sleep. Uh, so, uh, this has been uh, dubbed, uh, you know, uh, uh, brain washing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> As, because there does seem to be removal of toxins and possibly also uh, beta amyloid, at least in, amyloid, in animal models. Um, so that may be one reason why uh, getting sleep is important. Uh, and so I do uh, try to get at least seven and a half hours of sleep every night. And fortunately, I don't have any trouble sleeping, so uh, it's not a problem
1: so can you tell us how did you find out about your condition and did you have uh, were you more attuned to the symptoms because of your vast knowledge of uh, alzheimer's uh, before that
0: uh well no uh, it's it's kind of an interesting story i i had uh, no inclining of alzheimer's uh risk uh Both of my parents died early from cancer, so there was no obvious family history of Alzheimer's. Uh, In retrospect, uh, probably my first symptom of Alzheimer's occurred back in 2006 when I first noticed that I was having trouble smelling. Um, uh, uh, As I mentioned in the book, I was out walking with my wife uh, and the dog, different dog back then, uh, and I noticed that uh, uh, as we passed these roses in front of somebody's house, I bent over to, to smell them and I, I couldn't get any smell at all. And I commented to my wife that that was odd, uh, that that was a really nice looking rose, but it didn't seem to have much of a scent. And she smelled it and said, it smells great to me. So that was mm. that was the first inkling. Uh, my smell wasn't gone entirely, but it was just just an inkling. And I, I just attributed that to... Uh, to getting older. Everybody, uh, who, as we age, we lose, uh, uh, or, or uh, a certain amount of our ability to smell. And if we l- live to age 95, virtually everybody is anosmic. Uh, so that's, uh, aging is the number one thing that, uh, you know, causes a decrease in smell. And I was in my fifties then, so not particularly old, uh, at least by my current standards. Uh, But then about a year later, I started to get these very interesting uh, uh, illusory odors called phantasmias. They were stereotypical. They were always the same. Uh, At the beginning, they smelled like a mixture of baking bread and perfume. So it was a very pleasant smell. It would last uh, uh, at at least a couple of minutes, but sometimes as long as an hour. And at first, they occurred... Quite frequently, uh, you know, several times a week, and as the years went on, they became less frequent and finally went away altogether about five years ago. Uh, but during this period of time, my uh, true sense of odor uh, t- diminished to the point that it, it was absolutely gone, and I actually started testing uh, my sense of smell and and you know was able to graph. Uh, the fact that it, that it was deteriorating, uh, from, uh, being in the, the low range of, of, you know, hyposmia or, or poor smell to anosmia, which is, you know, no smell at all. So, um, so I had this, uh, this, uh, odd thing of losing my sense of smell entirely. And my, my general doctor, uh, was more excited about it than I was. And, and, Uh, she uh, insisted that I get an MRI scan of my brain. And I poo-pooed it, but I went ahead and got it. And surprisingly, it showed this very large uh, pituitary tumor uh, called a a macroadenoma. And uh, so I thought, well, gosh, this is what's causing the the decrease of smell. Uh, And these are benign tumors, but when they get very large, they can uh, cause damage to uh, particularly the optic nerve, and this was actually pressing on my optic nerve. So it was lucky that I caught it when I did, and so I had it removed. And I was sure that you know this would you know solve the smell problem that my smell would start getting better, and that was why I started tracking it with the, the smell test. But it didn't. Uh, the the my smell continued to deteriorate uh, after that tumor was removed, in, I think 2007 uh, until as I say it was gone completely, uh, by, uh, oh, 2010 or so. And then in 2012, uh, I accidentally found out that I, uh, have two copies of APOE4. And that came about because my wife, uh, is an amateur genealogist and, and, uh, wanted us to get our DNA tested, uh, to, to, uh, flesh out a couple of, of, uh, of, uh, pathways in our family trees, and uh, at that time, uh, there was a, uh, there were also results for various health risk factors, and there was one locked box uh, uh, for two neurological genes of interest, and you had to acknowledge that you should get uh, genetic counseling before unlocking these block boxes, but I said, oh, you know, I don't need that, uh, and the reason I was interested is that... Uh, one of the genes was uh, the LARC2 gene, which is the most uh, common cause of of uh, hereditary Parkinson's disease. Uh, now, most Parkinson's is, is idiopathic, uh, which just means we don't know what causes it. Uh, but about 20% is is hereditary, and most of those, the majority of them are due to a, a mutation in the LARC2 gene. And uh, so I thought, well, you know, maybe I'm on the path to get Parkinson's because I knew uh, that about 80% of people with Parkinson's disease lose their sense of smell years before they have uh, any of the motor uh, or gait problems of Parkinson's disease. So that's why I unlocked the box. And, of course, I didn't have the LARC2 gene. But the other gene there was ApoE, and uh, I was shocked to find out I had two copies of ApoE4. Um, now, at that time, I was cognitively totally normal, uh, and, had no problems at all. Um, but I did have a, a, a friend who was a dementia specialist do some off-the-record uh, computerized uh, uh, cognitive testing. And it came back showing uh, that I uh, was normal, uh, and I scored in the, the 95th percentile, in all domains, all cognitive domains that were tested, but one, Uh, and that was verbal memory. And I was only in the 50th percentile for verbal memory. Now, of course, that's normal, but in in looking at it in comparison to how I performed on the other cognitive domains, it was the first suggestion that there was something not quite right in those parts of my brain that were involved with verbal memory. So that got my attention. And over the next couple of years, I, I really did start to notice uh, uh, some, some cognitive trouble, that mild things that most people would dismiss as just uh, part of aging. I had trouble learning uh, the telephone number of my new office. Uh, I had trouble re- uh, recalling names of colleagues um, and, and sometimes neighbors. <clears throat> and, and so then... Uh, I retired in 2013 just because I was concerned that I was on the path to having a significant cognitive impairment and I didn't want to still be practicing medicine uh, if I had any cognitive impairment at all. So that was 2013. In 2015, I uh, underwent my first uh, uh, comprehensive uh, neurologic uh, cognitive test uh, down at University of, University of California in San Francisco, um, and uh, the cognitive tests again were normal, but did show the same uh, 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 relative uh, low scoring in verbal memory, uh, and so I was given a diagnosis of, of mild cognitive impairment at that time, uh, and I was asked to join a study uh, that was undergoing that was underway there at. at San, in San Francisco, of people at risk for uh, Alzheimer's disease, it was a neuroimaging study uh, to to do PET scans for amyloid and tau uh, over several points in time to see what what happened. And at that time, the the uh, the tau ligand uh, was uh, experimental. It has since been approved. And the amyloid uh, PET scan that I had was done with the Pittsburgh uh, compound, which is a, not a commercially available one, but it's still used quite a bit uh, in research. Um, it's, it's difficult to, to use on a commercial basis because the half-life is so short for the the, the ligand. Um, so I, I had those scans, and uh, then I was able to look at them. I also had uh, two days of cognitive testing and, and uh, uh high-resolution MRI scan. And I was able to look at everything at the end. And uh, it was fascinating because uh, there uh, was, on the amyloid scan, you know, a moderate amount of amyloid, uh, in, particularly in the, the prefrontal cortex, uh, uh, also in uh, a little bit in the precuneus. Um, but uh, uh, what I thought was really cool was that there was also amyloid in some of the olfactory processing areas, in, in particularly in the mesial uh, orbital frontal cortex and in the piriform cortex. And, and that, uh, even though pathologically, Alzheimer's pathology has been shown to occur very early, particularly in the olfactory bulb, this is the first time I think that anyone had, had been able to demonstrate um, uh, at least amyloid in areas that are involved with olfactory processing, so we all we were all there were about oh, thirty people in, in the room at this conference, and we were all kind of taken by how cool this was, and and, and this is an example of of my two hats because uh, it, w- it was really interesting to see that as a neurologist and neuroscientist, uh, and actually that was sort of a defense mechanism for me. And it has been all along in being able to intellectualize the experience and and the data uh, and, and and not be frightened by it. Um, so uh, three years later, we repeated the the uh, PET scans um, and cognitive testing. By that time, I did have some uh, definite cognitive impairment, and the uh, amyloid had had spread. And the tau I didn't mention the, the 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 tau PET showed just a little bit of tau in the mesial temporal lobes, which is where it begins, um, you know, pathologically. But uh, three years later, the tau had spread posteriorly through the temporal lobes, uh, bilaterally, but more on the left, um, and uh, and that was really interesting, uh, and and follows what we see a tau. Uh, I think the it, it, the uh, and I think this is the area of interest in your lab too is is, is uh, conformational issues with proteins. The, the tau seems to propagate almost like a prion, you know, uh, like uh, mad cow disease, in that uh, it it abnormal tau protein in the neurofibrillary tangle has an abnormal conformation, an abnormal shape. And then it it transmits that abnormal shape to tau in neighboring neurons. So so neurofibrillary tangles and tau, unlike amyloid, tend to tr- tend to spread in the brain from neuron to neuron, whereas amyloid tends to kind of pop up in, in different places and doesn't seem to have a, a connected pathway, whereas tau does. and, and this was a really nice uh, uh, example of that in my own, tau PET scan. Uh, I'm losing my thread here. <laughs> where, where, where are we going?
1: <laughs> yeah, that, that makes uh, really good sense. And I was just wondering, how did you find it yourself? Was it easy to communicate with your doctors about it? Because you're already so knowledgeable uh, about all of it.
0: Yeah, oh, a- absolutely. Uh, and, and, um, of course, i become actually quite quite uh, good friends with Gil Rabinovich, who's the the principal investigator for these studies at UC San Francisco. Uh, And uh, he's actually been a mentor. Uh, He was the one who really first urged me to write uh, about my experiences as a neurologist with Alzheimer's disease. And that resulted in an opinion paper that I wrote in 2019 uh, for JAMA Neurology. And, uh, and he's gotten me involved with, with several uh, uh, conferences and, and uh, uh, introduced me to people in, in the field. So uh, he's been a, a, f- a friend, a mentor and, and one of my doctors. Uh, also, the neurologist I see, the neurologist I see here in Portland, Joe Quinn is is a friend. Uh, we go back to the days of uh, we were, well actually, he was a neurology resident uh, at the medical school here. A few years after I finished. But uh, so I, I supervised him a little bit. Uh, and, and, and now he's middle aged and and, uh, and he's a great uh, uh, dementia specialist.
1: So you raised a very important point about uh, conveying your experiences uh, to general public. So what is the importance of a, a patient advocacy in medicine? And uh, do we need to get patients working with the practitioners?
0: Well, it's a two-part uh, question, really, uh, because it involves both the practitioners and the patients. Um, I think there's been a, a long-standing problem, and, and I was guilty of this as well uh, when I was first in practice and well into my practice, of neurologists and, and other doctors being um, not very interested in, in managing Alzheimer's disease and other dementias, uh, because especially back uh, before the... Uh, discovery of drugs like donepezil and other cholinesterase inhibitors, we had absolutely nothing to offer people with Alzheimer's disease, uh, other than encouragement and 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 uh, uh, placement and and uh, it was a very depressing uh, thing. And, and I think m- most of us, at least myself, I, I was uh, guilty of of. of uh, Avoiding tackling the issue head on, and, and uh, I feel bad about that. But I think some of that sentiment is still uh, is around among, particularly among uh, uh, general doctors, uh, that they feel like there is not much to do once the diagnosis has been made or or or, or, uh, uh, or suggested, uh, and that's just not the case. There is a lot to offer uh, people with Alzheimer's disease now, uh, not just medications, but in terms of of uh, uh, of social help, uh, 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 getting them involved in activities, uh, helping caregivers, uh, uh, getting involved in exercise, music, art programs, and in in the U.S. the Alzheimer's Association has been really, really important in developing those community resources, and in reaching out to doctors to to have them refer patients to them for for help. To, to, for families, to them, really, for help in 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 managing uh, the disease and and uh, and and and, so, and the troubles that sometimes can come uh, with it. Um. So uh, it, there's an education point in in for doctors, and that was the point of the paper that I wrote in 2019. That was direct, directed at other neurologists, and I was trying to make the point for early recognition of Alzheimer's disease and early management. And by that, I I meant um, getting people involved in lifestyle modifications uh, and and getting involved in research studies if they were on the road to Alzheimer's or other dementias. And now I'm trying to reach uh, a a greater group, which is the population as a whole, uh, particularly people in families uh, uh, with Alzheimer's, to uh, recognize what their risks uh, might be uh, going forward, and, and that middle age is the time to to start uh, uh, modifying that risk, if possible, uh, and it may uh, be more important than, than anything we can offer once uh, the dementia has has uh, has has started.
1: Excellent point, and bringing this discussion. Uh, to the forefront uh, of people's minds to really tackle the stigma and start discussing it, start talking about it.
0: So, That's right. But, I, and mm-hmm. oh, oh, I was just going to say that. The, yeah, I I found that. Uh, that people are very open to dis- discussing it, uh, uh, and and are surprised. Of course, you know people today when they find out I have Alzheimer's disease. Oh no, you don't. You can't have Alzheimer's disease. You know, <laughs> because mm-hmm. I don't fit the picture of what uh, th- that people have in their minds of of Alzheimer's, which is the the poor soul in the nursing home who can't speak and can't recognize family members. That's the end stage, and that's what we want to 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 put off as long as possible by. Making these changes earlier in the disease.
1: So then, what discoveries about yourself or society along your journey to writing your book, "A Tattoo on My Brain," surprised you the most?
0: Hmm. Hmm. What surprised me the most? Um, well, I, I guess I've I've been pleasantly surprised by uh, the openness that that people have. Uh, in in starting to talk about uh, Alzheimer's uh, earlier in the disease. I, I get a lot of emails from people who have Alzheimer's in their family or uh, who have found out that they have the ApoE4 uh, allele. Uh, and uh, I think the more we talk about it and the more we talk about proactive things that could be done to reduce risk, the more comfort uh, people have in 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 talking about it more because it's been um you know it used to be a disease that we felt had no hope to to offer but now there is hope to offer we just have to start doing that early uh, mm. and not waiting until it's too late um
1: and this is something that really struck me in your book that uh, that you really have this optimistic outlook on this uh, qu- quite severe disorder and uh, disorder that most people fear very very badly.
0: Yeah, and you know, um, you know, this may not be a, a politically correct thing to, to say, um, but one way that I look at it is that what I want to do personally from my own Alzheimer's disease and what I would hope other people would do as well, is to do everything I can to slow the progression of my disease to the point that I'll die of something else before I die of Alzheimer's. Uh, and, you know, that may sound like an obvious thing, but uh, that's really what it's all about. Um uh, uh, the If we live long enough, you know, most of us, the majority of people will have some degree of Alzheimer's pathology in their brain, you know by mm. the time in their 90s or not. But they didn't die of it. you know, they they it's still not affecting them very much. And we want to um, to put off the time uh, to to make more good life available for everybody um, and and uh, and and make it so that Alzheimer's doesn't rear its ugly head until, We've, we've been able to die uh, of something else.
1: Yes, exactly. So we increased our lifespan. Now we need to increase our health span to match it.
0: Absolutely. That's a good way to put it.
1: Well, we've taken up a lot of your time. So can you tell us what are you currently working on or in, are you engaged in what kind of projects and what will you do next?
0: Well, I'm, I'm still working on... Uh, uh, advertising the book not because uh, you know I, I I want to make any money on it if I ever do make any money it's going to be donated to Alzheimer's research but I want to get the word out uh, about the importance of, of early uh, recognition and management um, and to that point I've also uh, I'm working fairly you know steadily on uh, posting on a, a blog uh, tattoo on which I try to bring up to date some of the the most recent research uh, on Alzheimer's disease that didn't make it into the book, uh, and also talk about some of my personal experiences with it. So that it uh, uh, keeps up uh, that keeps me busy at, at times. Uh, I don't have any plans for writing another book. Uh, I, I think I've said what I have to say, but I, I do want to stay involved in the conversation, uh, both nationally and internationally to try to, advocate for alzheimer's and uh not on any one specific treatment or or uh you know intervention but to just uh uh, make it easier to talk about it and and to uh uh, promote uh, as much research as possible
1: and where can our listeners find more information about your work uh, your blog too and the book
0: well, the book is, is generally available uh, through the places that you would buy a book, uh, either online or in person. Certainly, your local bookstore can order it. I've had uh, a, a lot of my friends don't like to use the, the, the It Shall Go Nameless, the, the the big book distributor, and prefer to buy from a local bookstore. And, and I would certainly encourage you to do that. They'll be happy to order the book for you. Uh, there is a Kindle version, and there's an audio version as well. Uh, uh, the blog uh, is uh, tattooonmybrain.com. No, there's no A at the beginning. It's just tattooonmybrain.com. Uh, and there's uh, you can e- uh, reach me by email through the blog, uh, and I'm, I'm happy to, to get emails from, from people. Um, and I continue to write uh, when I have a chance for opinion pieces in newspapers and, and interviews and uh, and magazines.
1: Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. It has been truly illuminating discussion.
0: Well, thank you so much for having this forum, and, and uh, I very much enjoyed talking to you.